you're the whitest black girl we've ever met. You you don't talk black, you don't act black, and you don't look black. I was acceptable in a lot of settings, um, but only because I I had to behave a certain way. I had to suppress a lot of how I felt about stuff. Welcome to Holy Ghosting, a podcast about deconstruction from your middle-aged mom friends. I'm Lindsay, senior warden at my very liberal Episcopal church in Portland, Oregon. And no, that does not mean I'm a jailer. It means I am essentially board president. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Meg, and I am figuring it out through asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of research, and listening to a lot of wise people about paths that they have walked that maybe are open options for me. I'm Sarai, and I used to be a very good Christian girl. Those are, please use title case for that. And now I am an eclectic witch because I am no longer a Christian for lots of reasons, but um, still have a lot of appreciation for the things that I learned um, that were helpful to me along the way. So today on the podcast, we are so lucky, honored, Hashtag blessed, whatever you want to call it. We are deeply grateful that my dear friend and the most radiant human, Shania, has agreed to join us today and to talk about her experiences of being uh, raised evangelical and being a black woman in white evangelical spaces. And we want to start this episode off with just this, all the trigger warnings know that we will specifically be dealing with Uh, the topic of race, but all sorts of other things we will be talking about, probably getting into some trauma. And we are just so grateful that Shania has agreed to tell her story. And we feel really honored that you are going to take the time and tell us kind of about your your experiences in church as a black woman. So I just want to say like Shaw, like and I will say Shania is to know her is a privilege she is truly a radiant and wise human being like every time i spend time with her i feel like my cup is full when i leave like presence with her she throws the best parties of any human like her halloween parties are freaking (laughs) epic like i cannot even like this girl oh my gosh your decor your attention to detail like it's i don't know i wish i had more chances where we're busy moms and our life like paths don't cross as much as I would like but whenever they do Shaw like I said my my cup runneth over and I am grateful for your friendship and grateful for you coming on today so if you would go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself just who you are where you're at in life right now and then we can kind of go backwards and talk about all the fun things about childhood okay gosh uh let me like but after that because that was so thoughtful and hit me in the uh, heartstrings. So, yeah. Um, gosh, thank you for that. Um, I'm Shania, and I am honored that you guys asked me to be on here. Um, I guess I, I'll introduce myself a little same way you guys did. I also grew up um, sort of my label or my identity was really um girl um and really just that not a good christian black girl not a good christian biracial black girl 
but um, just simple, just like good Christian girl and blended in um, with my predominant white spaces um, and basically held on to that identity well into my 20s. And then I would say in my mid 20s, I started to reevaluate everything that I had represented. And that's really when I started to kind of find myself and uh, remained spiritual, I would say. And I'm still very much spiritual today, but in no way does it reflect sort of my, my past upbringing, which was, um, you know, pretty much non-denominational uh, or just as simple as raised as a Christian. Did you grow up going to church like every Sunday? Was that a thing that your family did? And kind of where were you raised? Were you raised, I think you moved a lot, but was church always a big part of where you were at? And what did those churches kind of look and feel like? So I was born in Portland, Oregon, um, and moved my brother and I up to Longview, Kelso, Washington area. And when I was about five months old was when my mom, I guess, got saved um, in the church. So that's sort of when that path began for our family as a whole. Uh, And then from there, church was very much a part of our lives, Um, not just on every Sunday, but every Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, right, for the the youngins. Um, uh, And then also there was home groups. So there was a lot of our (laughs) weekly involvement caught Mm -hmm. up in. We know it well. uh, Sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to remember because it, it really, it just felt like it was just the air I breathed. I think, I don't know if this is a stat today, but I do remember someone um, in the church telling me a long time ago that had like the highest um, number of churches per capita, like for how small the ratio oh. of how small the population was, mm-hmm. um, in, in the state of Washington, maybe, or maybe this applied outside of the state, it was an abnormal amount of, of churches in the town. Because, um, in my experience, a lot of the times it would be one large church that would often break off into lots of small little congregations, you know, differences in theology, or maybe like certain people got tired of certain politics within the church. And then like, there'd be a new branch in town and and everybody kind of knew that's just how it went. So I grew up going to a lot of different churches that were all sort of the same community. It's like entrepreneurial evangelicalism. Yes, that's a perfect way to describe it. Um, Even though people separated into these little groups, everyone's still sort of associated with each other and knew what was going on with wherever you were going at the time. Yeah, and the (laughs) gossip mill sounds like it really was working. (laughs) Yeah, we have places like that where like evangelical (laughs) people will all gather. It's called One Hope. It's here in Eugene, and that's where everyone knows everyone. So that's part of why... I'm okay. always like, do you know this guy? If you're a Christian in Eugene, you have to know these people. Um, and it's Yeah, it's that's how it was. It works well for fueling yeah. my shit talking these days, which is nice. So <laughs> thank you for existing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, Shaw, uh, I, I think I probably know the answer to this question. How diverse were these congregations that you grew up going to? Oh, gosh. 
so diverse. No, let me think. <laughs> oh man, we started out at this really tiny little faith chapel church, and I would say my brother and I, from from my memory, my brother and I, who were children, were the only <laughs> church. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, cause at the time at that church that, you know, that's how big your world is really. And, um, my dad who is full black, um, cause I'm half black, half white. My dad moved from Portland, kind of followed us there to be close to us. Um, and he actually wasn't allowed to attend our church. He was kept oh. out. Oh. So he would have been probably the, the most obvious, like, person of color or black man in our church, but because he was not allowed to attend, um, that, that was it. And then as I grew up, I don't remember seeing really anyone else that wasn't white until I, uh, this is probably not correct, but from my perspective, I don't remember seeing anyone that was black or, or mixed um, until I was an adult, when I was in my 20s wow. going to church. Wow. So when I was going on my own, is when I finally like was observant enough to see other people that were of any ethnicity other than white memories of diversity growing up. There could have been, but I wasn't seeing it. So I kind of doubt that there was. Can I ask, do you know the reason your dad was given for not being allowed to go to like, I I can't imagine that they just said you're black. You can't come here. I mean, maybe they did. No, it was. Yeah. It was more complicated than that. I look back now and I realize it was a factor, um, but it was complicated because the foundation of how we began in church really starts with the narrative of my mom and my dad, mm-hmm. um, because that narrative was a very stereotypical one. And it was the the era that we were in. It was just per- perfect timing um, to where it worked really well. And so when my mom left my dad, left that life. And we were born into um, pretty um, deep poverty. And um, well, my mom uh, at the time was doing sex work, just to put that out there. That is the truth. Um, And she was sort of in this life where it was either if she stayed in it at the time, For all we know, she may have not made it. Maybe my brother and I would not have. And so she ended up encouraged by some of her family members that are up north uh, to kind of leave and come get involved in church and um, start her life over, I guess. And so when she left Portland, that's kind of what her story was. It was, you know, she was in a pretty dark life. You know, she was doing sex work. She was to survive. I mean, she was doing it even while she was pregnant. That's, there's a lot there, you know, pretty uh, deep in addiction with, with drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff. And so she was just in a really, really bad situation in her life at the time. And so I understand looking back why she was trying to sort of escape that. Mm -hmm. But I think where um, the damage happened was, when she moved to Longview and we got involved in church, she sort of held on to that narrative as she shared her testimony. And it was more from like white damsel in distress Uh who escaped Mm -hmm. the black community, escaped this black man uh, with her two 
you know, black babies and, you know, how um, um, courageous and strong it was for her to leave that life behind and start over and then got pretty heavily involved in the church, like immediately just did a 180. Um, And it was all Mm -hmm. sort of based on, I got saved and Jesus. So she was attempting to leave her old life behind her. And my dad was a part of that old life. But what I think she didn't realize was there were two kids involved who had nothing to do with any of that. Mm-hmm. And I think her attempt to keep us away from um, all of that ended up hurting us more because then we were completely isolated away from um, any black influence, any black family, um, anything that would, you know, connect our part of our identity to that. That was sort of the story. And so when my dad moved and attempted to start over himself and be closer to his kids, the church was like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not welcome here. Wow. So it was complicated, if that makes sense. So he wasn't given the same, like, salvation option or redemption come as you are no no Mm. right we all know that whole come as you are and you know let us take you in and you know help you in some ways offered to my mom but not Mm. my dad so my dad stayed in town but he kind of stayed at a distance and he never was in church with us I'm thinking it's really interesting to me when people leave addiction and like immediately dive so headfirst into being being saved um, and yeah, kind of replace the previous addiction with a new one. It seems mm-hmm. like, one, having the cover of being a white lady <laughs> is it makes it easier, <laughs> like it does, and yeah. uh, especially yeah. in predominantly white spaces, for sure. And I think that getting there first also mattered, you know, because, mm-hmm. of course, then she was sort of the one that they had loyalty to. Um, but come as you are is literally like just a bait and switch. Right. So come as you are so we can change yeah. you and make you in our image of middle class whiteness that's acceptable and appropriate here. And it, I do think that's yes. a lot of American Christianity that's just interesting to observe, I think, about how that affected your family, um, including how it affected, yeah. I'm sure, your dad and you, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. obviously, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I, w- I would say that it's, it's interesting that I decided to go ahead and share those details because um, most of my life I've protected my parents and especially those parts of their story, they, they've already uh, passed on. And so I really had to work through the sort of awareness of it's okay to share these things. This is your story and this is not shaming them. This is not hurting them. I used to think it was going to hurt them, harm them, Mm. make them hate me. Um, I really learned at a young age to protect my parents and Mm -hmm. protect pieces of their story and never associated as being my story until and my right to share. So that's kind of why I decided today, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put those big words out there that get a lot of hype and stuff like that. And, but that's what it was like, that was the life my mom was walking away from. And so there's, 
wonderful aspects of that that I believe still to this day that saved our lives. But at the same time, <laughs> it's just sort of harmful environment for whatever reasons for another. And I think at the time, my mom really did believe in that same, I think she really believed that narrative. I think it was told to her over and over again by many people. Um, and so I think she just sort of rolled with it and it remained her testimony for my whole upbringing. Wow. Um, and I think what that did was it caused me to really repress any attachment mm-hmm. or any connection to, I knew I was black, right? I knew I was, I was, that was a part of who I was, but growing up in that environment, that religious environment, it, it wasn't possible for me to sort of embrace both. I had to sort of deny one in order to be embraced in the other. That was my experience most of my upbringing. Did that cause you to dissociate your blackness from yourself as well? Or was... Absolutely. Just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that sort of I felt about myself being black was more about my internal world mm-hmm. because that's the only safe space or safe place for it. Um. I was too young to uh, feel connected to it um, when I was with my dad or I was around my dad and, and, and at times some of his family. I was too young to understand. Um, <clears throat> a big part of why that is is because my dad um, ended up going to prison many years later when I hit adolescence. So during those really pivotal years where you're really, really tapping into like, who am I, right? Like, I feel like when you're going through your adolescence, you're starting to really figure out like, what, what am I about? Who am I? What do I believe? Like, what do I like? What do I don't like? How do people perceive me? You know, all the rest. And so at that time he was gone prison for six years um, before I graduated high school. I had no connection to my blackness at all. It was gone. What did you hear about race in church growing because you assimilated really well into this white evangelical mm-hmm. community and like you said you were a good Christian girl and you didn't really associate as a good Christian black girl that wasn't the identity you held at the time so I'm curious sort of what mm-hmm. were the messages you heard around race and did you feel like the whiter you acted were you given more acceptance I know that's a two-part question but I'm just take that for whatever you want yeah, and run and with I get- it uh, yeah I don't remember hearing any like or anything like that. Um, not saying that it didn't happen, but I, if it did, I was checked out. <laughs> but I did that a lot. I checked out a lot. But I definitely got that message socially, I would say. Or even better, when I was younger, before school or even during my elementary school years, I was a very observant kid. I was like the hawk watching my mother and how other people interacted with her or treated her. So I think that with my own sort of internalized shame at a young age, like my dad's not allowed to be around me. There's no one else that looks like me or looks like my dad. Um, I don't even know what this means. I didn't even know what to be black meant in, in any capacity that came from like the way I observed my dad being treated or the, the way that 
Um, some of those narratives were sort of explained to me. So I had that sort of shame that started at the beginning. So on top of that, while watching my white mother interact with all these different people and talk with them, I thought that is the way to be. Mm-hmm. That That's how I'm going to basically be accepted or that's how I'm going to belong. On top of that, I observed my mom. She was a total hippie. She was kind of like a, 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 you know, a stallion. She was just wild. She was just this free spirit that like, you could just feel it when she walked into the room. And so in a church environment, you know, that's dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I observed her often getting her hand slapped Mm. or, you know, not literally, but like kind of reprimanded for being too much or Mm. um, like my mom would often go to the back of the church and just lift her hands and just, you know, she was just free during the worship. And a lot of people would always go up to her and be like, you're being too loud. You know, you need to sit down. You know, God really spoke to me in this moment and told me to come tell you. What? Oh, I love it. Wow. I love a good God spoke to me. (laughs) Yeah. As a fellow Mm -hmm. free spirit. God told me to tell you to shut up. (laughs) Yeah. That's the message I got for sure. And go sit your ass down, right? That was really, I remember about that as such a young kid. Because you would think most kids are just, you know, not paying attention to that. Not me. I was very much hyper vigilantly aware of my surroundings. Hmm. Especially when my mom was in the room. I always was like, I have to watch her in order to figure out how to be. Hmm. She's my, sort of my point to look at and figure out how to behave in that setting. And so because she was a little bit more free spirited and a more outspoken and, um, and she was beautiful. And I would watch a lot of the time people come over and go, you know, can you please go sit down? You're being really disturbing to other participants. And, and so I think at a young age, I was like, okay, so I can't sort of attach myself to any sort of black identity. That's not safe. That's not accepted. I also can't attach myself to any sort of authenticity, whatever it is that I am, it's okay. And it's accepted. That wasn't okay either. Don't be loud. Don't speak much, you know, dress a a very certain way because my mom also got the message many times that she was too provocative or she was um, a little too friendly and also too Hmm. friendly with men, especially Hmm. married men. Um, so I, I learned all these messages and I kind of just, I don't know, I, I figured out my playbook and that mm-hmm. I kind of just went with that for many, many years. Did that feel safe to you, Shaw, to be in that environment and assimilate in those ways? How would you articulate what you did and how it felt to you? I don't think I ever felt safe, never felt safe, but I did feel like I had figured out how to play the game, I guess. I don't even know if that's the right language, but it's, you got, you kind of understand what I'm saying. Like I learned really Mm -hmm. early on, like I don't have any way to get out of this. This is my life. I'm stuck here. Hmm. So I either have to figure out the game and play it really well, really well as a black woman, because I wasn't just, a white girl in church, which you guys understand that, like we all collectively understand that to be a woman in the church, I had to have these extra 
strategies, I guess, to really make it in this predominantly white environment because I stood out and I did not want to stand out. Standing out was dangerous and scary and could get you into trouble. I learned don't stand out, blend in, (laughs) blend in the background because my mom stood out just as a white woman. So I knew I had that wisdom very young, but I, she didn't know that, but I knew it. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think that the interesting (laughs) thing about the evangelical church is that I think a lot of these messages were so covert, you know, I think it was a lot in actions and how people were treated. And rather than, you know, maybe they're not coming up to the pulpit and saying, you know, horribly racist things, but you learned from the way that your mom was treated as someone who was viewed as an outsider in a different way. Your mom was, Mm -hmm. like you said, a free spirit. They knew she had been a sex worker. They knew she'd been an addict. And so already she's being othered, even though she's all in with them. She's doing all the things. She's going to the Bible studies. She's worshiping. And in some ways it's like for crying out loud, let this woman worship. Like, isn't this what you want? Like that's the thing that I don't understand. She was like an evangelist, right? With the way that she behaved. And yet that was too much. (laughs) And it's still too much. It's still too much. And so you know that like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're already feeling like, and (laughs) you're different from them just by looking at you. And so blending in is so much harder for you. Yeah. I can't, uh, yeah, the layers there. Uh, Sarai, it's yes, very I oh. multi-layered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, layers and layers. And, and I also am really. It's interesting to me to recognize and notice how, even though your mom left a life behind and an identity that she once had, and then it became her story, that like testimony story. And now I'm reborn into this other mm-hmm. thing. That also was never really fully allowed to happen because people in the church were still always watching and trying to control her behavior. Talking about she was too friendly with men, especially married men, like hardcore purity culture, bizarre shit there. But Mm -hmm. also like not really necessarily her fault for just having a personality and interacting with people authentically. Um it's it's yeah. super interesting. I just feel like the stereotypes and the narratives and the pathways have been carved for millennia and we continue to comply with them even to this day in such a repressive and high control way that your sense of like, how do I perform not standing out? How do I perform goodness so that people aren't going to be up on my case all the time or noticing me because you already do stand out in a way that you instinctively knew wasn't safe and wasn't a way Mm -hmm. that you could stand out and be celebrated. It was a way that you would stand out and then be instead castigated or um, abandoned or whatever the case might be. That is, that's a scary place to be, especially as a kid and through basically your whole entire life. If you like what we're doing and you want to support the show, please come join us at patreon.com forward slash holy ghosting. Lindsay's this gonna is, do what what are yeah. we doing? Set us up. This is yeah, maybe it's a put a finger down Unit. or whatever. Like this is a did you okay. hear this from Christians <laughs> growing up? Okay. Before we get into the game, does everybody remember amazing uh band DC Talk? Oh, oh yeah. of course. I'm down with the DC um, Talk. They, I'm down. <laughs> I'm down with the DC Talk. Oh, of course. We we made Shaw, Shaw's, like, Shaw's got a hand. No. Oh. These, tell me your, can we like, get Shaw's opinion? I should know. No, I should you know shouldn't. more. I 
Oh, I'm telling you guys, I, I I'm gonna say the same thing. I really blocked a lot of shit out. I think yeah. I even blocked out as much as I possibly could because it was just <laughs> terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Christian music and country music was like uh it was just shoved down my throat and it just never it never tasted right to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just never tasted good. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I just never I don't think I got into DC talk when when everybody else was at the time. I mean, so I don't remember very much. Bless- that's another fair. blessing in your life. That's so They were exciting. <laughs> Yeah, my very first concert that I saw live was DC Talk opening for Billy Graham. Ah, what? Oh my yeah. Wait, Billy God. Graham sang? No, he preached, but they he were like opening it. for him. I like that they got the youth there by bringing DC Talk in. They sure did. Billy That's Graham. how they got me there. Uh huh. And it was uh-huh. right when Jesus you Freak saw was coming Billy out. Billy Graham in person? Like on sure. I did too. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. baller. I saw him at Matt yeah. Court wow. 900 years ago. <laughs> but it was so crowded. The arena was full. We were in the parking lot <gasps> watching it like on a screen. But what? then they would do the round. They would like oh, they played goodness. inside, showed it on these big screens. But then the band and I think Billy Graham would come out. There was like a stage outside that they would come out and do like a few songs live out for us out in the parking lot. Wow. So um, I will say so because there's such a lack of diversity in evangelicalism. DC Talk was like they had two white guys and a black guy. They even have a song. Do you guys remember this? Called Two, <gasps> two Honks and a Negro. Yes. Two, two Honks and a Negro. Yes. Yes. They oh, have my God. Wait, what was it yep. called? Two Honks and a Negro. That was the name of the song? Yeah. They had, <laughs> yep. Yep. That was. Uh, they were really. It was their Trying to be edgy. Yeah. Well, they were they trying were, to be progressive at the time, I guess. I don't they, know. Would yeah. that have been considered progressive? I, like, ooh, look at us. Like, we're taking these words these words back it's like what is it the reverse reverse racism or something like whether we're like we're being like we're making fun of all of us right uh-huh. i don't know but yeah they yeah so it's kind of the 90s yeah yeah it's the 90s right and so i feel like they really ushered in some of the era of uh christians who are colorblind that was kind of their whole thing yeah. that was and was that a dc talk thing so they had a song on jesus freak called colored people yeah, pardon right. Okay, me pardon your me. Epidermis is showing. Couldn't help Serena, but yeah. note your shade of melanin. <laughs> you know it. Tip my but the- head to the colorful arrangement because I see the beauty in the color of our skin. Oh my God, I remember this song now, but I did not pay attention to the lyrics because I probably just didn't pay attention to any of that at any point. Right. You blocked but it all out. I cannot believe that. That came from a deep part of my unconscious. And I do think that's wow. probably where I first was like, oh, as Christians, we're just colorblind. That's like what we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we're mm-hmm. all God's creation. Mm-hmm. Let's not Ew. let's not pay attention to any systemic anything ever because everything is about mm-hmm. your individual relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus Christ. Everything else is absolved from now on, including systemic injustices. Like, we don't need to worry about that. Right. Yeah, I forgot about parts of this song. So, like, the chorus is, we're colored people and we live in a tainted place. We're colored people. They call us the human race. Um, We've got history so full of mistakes. And we are colored people who depend on a holy grace. And I feel like this is the overarching messaging of, like, okay, so here we go. 
let's start that. So did we, who of us heard in church growing up, uh, when, when race was brought up to who heard calls for unity, like unity. no, yeah. Calls for unity. Uh, who heard yeah. for, or, uh, how about, how about when talking about harms of the past, things that white people did to, uh, non-white people who heard that uh, calls for grace, we need God's grace. We just need prayer. We just need the Lord. I'm doing this backwards. I'm putting my fingers up. I am too. Of my fingers That's fine. down. Can I mention that we did it <laughs> backwards? Can I check in with you about a variation on that theme? That yes, I please. Uh, yeah, please add add my to this. Yeah, very white mother who loved the pioneer days. Mm. We were not only taught that the past sins could be, you know, absolved by grace. But we were taught that, like, in my family, this is horrifying. I'm so sorry. I, like, actually hate to say this, and it's really freaking me out to say it because it's so gross, that, like, people <laughs> who were enslaved were, you know, some people who owned other humans were wonderfully benevolent masters mm -hmm. and, benevolent. you know, yep. and that, and this, okay, so sorry. Accidentally, Lindsay, I'm not trying to hijack this, but I do just want to put a pin in. Uh, there's There's a lot around blackness and evangelical christianity that it has its own culture of course and also the way that people were stolen from their homes brought here to live or die slash do all of the work for white people and get nothing but pain and suffering and horror was also a way that christianity has propagated itself by saying basically like well yes you're here to suffer when you die, it's all going to be okay. So that's what I heard. I'm going to go ahead and say that's yeah. same enough. Yep. Two figures. Yep. Yeah. Uh, did anybody, was anybody taught about or remember anything about the curse of ham? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I do remember that. that I remember. Okay. Okay. We'll put a pin in that. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, okay. Did anybody hear? What are, it, what, and was this also like Cain and Abel had something to do with race? Is that? Uh, may maybe did any okay so did anybody hear that races uh all came from the tower of Babel? yes tower of Babel. Yes. love that yeah. one. yes yeah. language yep. Yep. that it was yep. god it was god's punishment because they were trying to reach him tower. so he was like yeah. i'm gonna separate you all by mm -hmm. race and split the tongues yeah yeah right but also did anybody yeah. hear that there is in christ there is only one race, the oh. human race. Yeah. Yeah. That's colorblindness, that. right? Yeah. Like, right. Yes. It's yeah. similar because it's yeah. like it's divisive. Yeah. It, it, so that's a lot of that. Like goes we all bleed to, red, right? If we cut ourselves, we all bleed yes. red. Kind of the. So right, we're all well, the same. And <laughs> red and yellow, black and white. Ugh. Oh, my God. That song Ugh. is so problematic. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Oh, my God. I'm telling I children it. this. I remember as a, as a little girl, like, like I can imagine myself as a little kid singing that song. I Red didn't know it was about skin tones until I was much older yeah. and was like, "Wait a minute, you what?" That's yeah, like, it's when you ask that yellow? question, "Who's yellow?" That's when oh, every kid finally gets to that point every where they're like, time. wait, we're talking about people's skin? Who's yellow? And we only knew I, red because and red. of I, racism toward Native Americans. Like that's yeah. what so Native Americans uh, Native yeah. Americans Yellow and Asians. Asian. Yeah. Asian. Yeah. yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Hate Let's to differentiate all these people because the Tower of Babel gave us a really cute reason to embrace tribalism. 
Fuck it. Okay. Go also, on. Peter yeah. Pan, I think, yeah. um, re- reinforced the red man <laughs> idea. So Jesus loves the little children, and then Peter Pan's the red man Damn. just told me that native people are red. So we I learned that really, at a pretty young age. Really consumed like, have you ever racist shit, seen kids. a native person? Like, have you? It's just, it's such bullshit. It's just, <laughs> A bunch of white people uh. got together and were like, I don't know. Let's just like red and yellow. Seems you know fine. who's red? Me. Anytime I'm in the sun. Immediately. <laughs> That's who turns red. That's me. Okay. It's white people. It's true. Yeah. We're the, yeah. We're the red ones. Yeah. It's true. I couldn't frankly remember, again, like a sermon being preached. But I knew, I was like, if I start peeling back the layers, I know that there was such weird stuff. And I'm so far removed from a lot of these things now in my life. Like, so much of this comes from if you take the Bible, if you interpret the Bible mm-hmm. as literal, if mm-hmm. every single thing in the Bible is literal and it happened and if it didn't happen, then your entire faith is gone. Not, not then you have to find these ways yeah. to to justify certain scriptures and certain things. And so like if you have to believe that all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve, every single last fucking person on this earth, then mm-hmm. it, it makes sense where you're like, well, we're all the same. And we're all, and I watched like, I watched a scientist video like describing heavy how air quotes from Lindsay. Heavy air quotes <laughs> there on, on why uh, some scientific justification for why all of the races in the world that exist now could come from two people, which is funny because there's actually, I did a little research and there is, a conservative like scientist think tank or whatever that in recent years has actually said like with DNA and what we have now that these conservatives are like we cannot in like good conscience say that we have all de- like descended from Adam and Eve like the science is just not there Doesn't and support like it. a yeah. couple of these yeah a couple of these guys like lost their jobs because they were just like so, you can still believe the Bible and not think that Adam and Eve were real people because I remember being a kid and being like well, that's weird if we all like people are very different and no, we but all I, just- can we even go back to like there was one woman and she had boys as sons and then and they there's and a, then lot incest, what? a lot of incest. No, <laughs> I well, mean, and mind the you, whole story let's, of Noah. Hello. Right. Let's also go back to the fact that we actually wouldn't really all be from Adam and Eve. We would be from Noah and his family because like God killed everybody. From oh, that's Adam. right. Yeah. The so, earth was like yeah, completely was destroyed oh, without yeah. one flood. Well, that's one of the theories I've heard is like, oh, all of Noah's sons-in-law were of different races or something. Like it fit into the two sure, by two okay. shit, you know, like, yeah, right. Yeah. Cool well, story, that bro. So, that's where the curse of Ham comes in. And so I... I is, is Ham is it, sorry? Can is Ham like post Noah? So it's like it was Noah. one of Noah's sons. Okay, yeah, I okay. think. Yeah. Um, and so it was Shem. Sorry, Ham, I didn't get a. Um, I didn't get a degree in Bible, so mm-hmm. I, I just got to lean in on. Yeah, you on guys are way more. <laughs> Y'all yeah, got I, lots of details that I I can't even recall. Like I, little names here and there. I'm like, yeah, I remember, but I don't. I can't remember a lot of the scripture anymore because I just haven't looked Good at it you. you probably weren't actually <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed I, I'm actually yeah no the truth is like most Christians don't know the story of Noah they just know the cute animals part and not the mm-hmm. his daughter's the getting gnarly. drunk and getting pregnant from his fucking penis <laughs> like, yeah exactly a... hello or I I think I I used to read my bible pretty um 
I mean, pretty much every day, but I did it under like a lot of stress. I was telling Lindsay yesterday, I was like, I remember being ridiculed or called out for like people knowing that I didn't know my Bible as well as I did because of the way that I prayed. Like I didn't use the lingo properly or I didn't have enough of the integrated into my prayers. Um, And so it was obvious that I was not being better disciplined in reading my book reading the scripture and what (laughs) what What kind of hyper vigilance over your prayers is happening it's like people are like here's the thing you're not as holy as you should be and we can tell we can tell that you're backsliding yeah that was basically what i was being told i feel like every prayer i ever experienced i'm like probably because i have so much shit going on in my life and i'm like and you know y'all look over that you know i'm barely making ends meet I don't have time to read my freaking bible and impress you during prayer sorry (laughs) but you know all of that circumstantial stuff they tend to ignore so well you'll get your reward in heaven having a hard time yeah yeah since when is prayer you'll get your riches in heaven yep yeah suffer now Take me to ham because this guy. Take me to him. Well, I don't know that you racial really shit that the church is going to use him to. I don't know. Try to justify their bullshit. I'd love to know. So uh, I I remember hearing about the curse of ham. I don't think I was like again like specifically taught it, but I knew in certain circles that we ran in. So um, a lot of people back in the day. uh, So slaveholding Southern Christians often justified the institution of slavery by. Uh, appealing to the so-called curse of Ham. In their interpretation, which surfaced in the 16th or 17th century, the Genesis account establishes that God wills black people to be enslaved perpetually. Genesis does not support Mm -hmm. this interpretation, mind you, is like what most people have found. But like there was an old school, like somehow people decided, and I can't even remember why Ham was cursed in the Bible, but people just decided that he was black and represented black people because he was cursed that his race should be cursed and so that was a thing that people took from the bible which is fucked up uh and i don't need to get into any more of that i know that like and again anybody listening like i'm sure you all were taught some wild stuff as well um like i said i have pushed a lot of this down shot like a lot of this stuff i had forgotten about and i was like i don't really remember being taught stuff about race but as i was kind of researching for this episode i was like oh yeah no i heard that message yes i definitely heard that message like all this stuff that like i hate that i grew up knowing you know and frankly like in in the churches that i grew up in yeah there were no black people i went to a christian high school there was one black person in my high school Wow. And I think about him and his experience, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't imagine what that was like for him. And, you know, like, it's just I was not surrounded by people who were different than me ever. My whole life was so homogenous and I was sheltered from anyone who didn't look, think or act like me. And what a a loss. Like what a I just don't see how that is beneficial for anyone, especially from a faith that claims to want God's love for the whole world, you know? Yeah, um, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Sarai is biting her fist in anticipation. <laughs> Who does benefit from racism and white supremacy and colonialism? <laughs> and white all of home. that was spawned by the Roman catholic church from beginning the beginning of fucking time which then became all the other churches that still exist today that is who
who benefits is people who would like to retain their white power and Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. will vote for Donald J. fucking Trump. Like, that's what this is. The end. That's that's it. I had to put in my unholy alliance once in this episode per per my contract. (laughs) It's really just self-serving. That's what I've sort of chalked it up to be. It's, yeah. it's not a collective <clears throat> goal or, I mean, I know that there's people out there. I, I always remind myself, even when I speak about these kinds of things, even when I criticize it as a, as a whole, like I know people, I mean, when you grow up in that environment, your whole life, you know, there are such good people that hold on to those ideas and beliefs and, <clears throat> you know, in no way do I ever want to disrespect certain people that I've known throughout my life that still hold some of those beliefs um I yeah I would say that like like as a collective goal that that people in power I think had in mind was this is about serving ourselves this is about us getting at the top really I mean it's Mm -hmm. it's the same systemic junk that you know you deal with in every other sector that's how I look at it so yeah I think in the church they just make it a morality type of issue yeah, this is a powerful thing, isn't it? Um, Shaw, I wanted to ask, I know that obviously you have had quite the journey out of evangelicalism, and I know that we've talked at length just from being your friend. I know that um, for many years, even as you maybe, you know, weren't going to church in the same way and, and had different beliefs that you didn't feel comfortable speaking out about things and politics and religion and I know that in recent years, mm-hmm. some of that has changed. Do you feel comfortable talking about kind of like some things that changed for you? And I know that like Trump and all that really kind of ignited some fires under you. Are you, are you willing to kind of talk about some of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it, I think some, where some of my stuff started to bubble up was prior to Trump really too. He was just that kind of catalyst. He, he didn't surprise me at all. I mean, it was, very very frustrating and painful and stressful to deal with him in the public for so many years that we did that was really hard because he just hit you at home because it was being projected by the people around you so he didn't surprise me um I've kind of known who Trump has been for for years long before he was ever in politics right 2020 really just the reality of what was going on around me, my entire upbringing, it, it really revealed the reality of, of a lot of people that I still admired and respected and kind of still stayed a little bit in contact with. And so when I started seeing their behavior and their reactions to stuff, that's when I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is hitting me at home. And it was, it was intense. So he, he just sort of ignited it for me. And, and was that in the way that people were outwardly supporting him and the things that he was saying? And you just kind of realized, like, the people that I thought were loving and caring and accepting are really different? Well, and it was a lot about yeah. George Floyd, right? Yeah. Like, how people responded to George Floyd and the protests and what people were saying, I think, specifically since that was so, so heavy. And I, right? Is that where you kind of, yeah. that, that broke you and you spoke out a lot publicly about that? Yeah, that's where like my 
uh, my more public outrage came from was after. But I mean, it started really boiling up when Obama was, Mm. you know, campaigning the very first time, which Mm. was, you know, many years ago. But I still was dealing with a lot of that internally. That was where it was sort of starting to boil was inside. But I wasn't at a place in my life where I felt safe to really talk about it or process it because I was still in environments that were predominantly white. And and also what I didn't realize was even though I left the church, so I left just flat out, just never went back 2007, which is when I moved to Portland. So I, that's when I finally left. And I'm glad I did when I did because right, like the whole uh, presidential cycle was kind of happening. Um, and I'm so thankful that I left before that all started because I can't even imagine what that looked like within the walls of the church. Throughout, that, um, I was still heavily in a conservative environment of people, even though I had not identified as a conservative. I wasn't. I didn't identify as a Republican. I didn't really identify as a political individual in the first place. But I was. I considered myself progressive. I. I've always sort of uh, considered myself liberal, but I just never really got involved much in conversations. I was very, very careful, very, very careful. So when all of the Obama stuff was going on from people like, no joke, real concerns from friends and family that were like, I he, it, mm, I think he's the Antichrist. Oh, I really do think like, like oh, it wow. was, I, it, and I, I even got asked like, I mean, come on, like, right. Don't you, and I, I think I, I surprised, I was so surprised that they felt that way, but I think they were shocked that I was like, what in the hell are you talking about? Um, Because that was their echo chamber and I wasn't in that anymore. And so for me, those were sort of the first years when I was like, holy moly, what kind of environment was I really, really in for all those years? That's when it got real serious for me in understanding what I was being raised in and what I kind of stayed in throughout my early 20s um because for me at the end of the day the church really was just my family it was like yeah. my social circle it was my safe mm-hmm. space it was my community and it was that first before all the religion because i didn't have a healthy family dynamic i wasn't close to any of my family at the time other than my siblings um and so when all of my, the social aspect and the community aspect and support fell apart for me, that's when I left. And then I started to really unpack the religious aspect of that part of my life. Because I don't know that I ever really got in it fully. I think I, I really don't like to use the analogy drinking the Kool-Aid because I, I just think it's not the appropriate analogy at all given its history in the context of that but it similarly if that makes sense like it's mm-hmm. I, I grew up wanting to be a part of it and I wanted to belong but I couldn't ever really catch on to what was being taught mm-hmm. <laughs> I always felt like an outsider like is there something wrong with me I am I not a strong enough believer am I not is my relationship not right with God because I just don't feel the same way that all of these people around me feel like they're all, you know, speaking in tongues at times when they feel like, and I don't know what that is. And, you know, even my mom did that kind of stuff. And then um, I believe I didn't um, feel this anointing type stuff that everyone was always claiming to have felt. But 
once I left the community and I started to see uh, people that I considered supportive or, or loving or um, always accepting of me, I started to see their online behavior. And I was like, oh my gosh, I did not know any of this. I either ignored it or I blocked it out or I just didn't want to know. I was in denial. So I was kind of going through a lot of that first long before Trump came into the picture. So when he did, and then it just blew up, everybody really put their stuff out there and, 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 um, and it just sort of, uh, grew for me. Yeah. It was like, it was really covert. It was like in the shadows and secret before for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. And it was just kind of, it was like, we, we don't talk about it, but we all just know, we just know what we know. And, and then when, when something happened with Trump where people just didn't care anymore and their hatred was yeah. just out. I think he know. modeled yeah. that it, behavior. It, he showed people yeah. how to be. Yeah. I, I think that all of that racism, you know, it all existed. He just showed people how to bring it to light or how to talk about it openly. And, but it was such a weird divide. And in some ways, I guess it was, maybe helpful is not the right word, but you were able to at least see people's true colors, right? Like people were kind of out in the open about things. And maybe that's easy for me to say as a white person, because like it wasn't damaging to me personally, but at least I knew what I was dealing with. And I was just kind of like, fuck off. Yeah. Like, you know, I was yeah. just like, okay, I'm done with you and I'm done with you and I'm done with you, you know? like Yeah. It, yeah. yeah it kind of went from like comments, little comments here and there that you had, to, you were confused about and you're trying to process like, what does this really mean? What are they really saying? And then when Trump came along, it was just like, they just, you know, blew the roof right off and said it exactly how they saw it. I had to come to terms with the reality. I was in denial a lot because I didn't want to believe that is what I was growing up around Mm -hmm. my whole life. It was very painful to be honest with myself about people. And, And I'm not talking about just, you know, church attendance or fellow you know, friends in the church or whatever. I'm talking about like my, you know, blood, my family, my mom's family. Yeah. Um, when the Obama years were going on here and there, little comments here and there. And then I, I found myself brave enough to challenge a couple of leaders or, or mentors or people that I looked up to that were on social media. I challenged them a little bit when they kind of put themselves out there. I would get in and I'd make a comment here or there. I would just say my piece. And that was scary, but um, I do know that a couple people were kind of like, oh, you know, I didn't mean it like that, da, 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 da. but because, you know, it's easy for them to throw that stuff out there when 99.9% of their following either agrees with them or, you know, are one person, maybe one out of maybe a handful of people of color that they knew or went to church with are like, what? Like, why are you saying that? Like, they just, they don't have the awareness that like there are maybe just a small number of people watching that, that you can't relate to, or you don't understand how this impacts them. But once I brought it to certain people's attention, they would just backtrack and give all their, you know, um, justifications for it and stuff like that. Once Trump was in office, it was, that was over, you know, to not, be disrespectful or or rude or whatever like people were trying to do during the Obama years it was just full-on like just the gloves came off they didn't yeah yeah they didn't feel bad anymore I was just a I felt like a nobody at that point like it just didn't matter they 
they were fully committed to to their crap that they were spewing out so it's yeah so, that was hard so to watch so I'm sorry Shaw you had to <laughs> experience that from people that you had mentorship from and really looked up to I think that's one thing that uh it's really hard to reconcile that to yeah. especially people that that you thought really were looking out for you and did have your personal best interests at heart it's terrible that people yeah yeah I think too like if if it's okay to make this point since we're on that topic is that my mom passed away in 2016 in September so like when she died and then Trump won or even when he was going through his whole like campaigning and stuff right leading up to that I was so checked out I was like not I did not give a shit about politics at the time because my life was so chaotic. Mm -hmm. And um, so I missed all of the devastation and like the just disappointment of him winning over uh, Hillary and, and how everyone was so upset. I mean, even my brother was just like enraged, right? Like he was so angry and upset. And I was just in this different world at the time, like just trying to, keep the pieces together for our family and so I was not as observant of what was going on online when he first got into office I just didn't care you know what I mean I think there were a lot of people around me that who did care were like um, including you know some of my own family um, were like uh, you know you should care about these things like you just uh, I think my brother and I you know we've reconciled this and we're a lot um, we're past this, but at the time we were kind of at odds because he didn't understand why I wasn't more involved, more, more engaged at the time. And I think for me, I just didn't have the capacity for it. And so then when the pandemic hit and we all had time to sit and watch everything going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just had my, my like nine months old. So I was going through that new motherhood and stuff like that. So super hormonal, you know, whatever, just figuring out life and surviving, And then I saw the whole like George Floyd thing. Obviously that was devastating. It like rocked me at the core. But what was worse was seeing people I knew or in the church that I grew up with in my whole life and my mom's family just become so nasty online. That made it so much worse for me. And that's when I hit a wall and fucking ballistic online. (laughs) I just... I just was enraged and I was like, I'm putting it out there. This is how I feel. Now, you know, so. (laughs) And you got a lot of pushback and you lost relationship over that, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I lost family. Um, I mean, I don't know what their perspectives are on how they saw it, but for me, um, you know, I knew what it felt like to be abandoned many, many, many times throughout my life, but that, feeling of abandonment during that time was it sent me into one of my worst mental health states after that like I was in a crisis like and it was impacting my body I um like I was losing weight I was not sleeping I was having like convulsions I was severely dehydrated I was a mess I don't know what was going on with me but I think it was like I was coming into this reality it was like I had I had been shocked or something or um woken up from being asleep 
I think what people from my hometown or from my past don't realize is that the majority of my environment's been white people, white family, white friends, you know, white colleagues at jobs and things like that. But as I got older, I started to get closer to my, some of my dad's side of the family. So I had more black followers, right? Family members or, or some friends that I've met throughout the years since moving out of that town um, or that I went to school, college with in Chicago. And because I was aligned with them more and I was seeing their posts and it really encouraged me to speak up because for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a little bit of a community that I was aligned with, but it was very mm. small. And then I also had my brother really pushing like, don't miss this moment. And I, so I was feeling the pressure, but I also was feeling my own internal pressure to finally speak my truth. And, and I, what happened before I posting stuff publicly was I was getting massive DMs and text messages from people throughout my life as their, I was their token. I was the one mm. they came to with all their questions. I was the one that they came to I don't think they knew they were doing this at the time, but they were like seeking validation or seeking some sort of, they wanted me to ease something for them that they were yeah. feeling. And I think I got so exhausted, big post. And I was even honest. I was like, this is the scariest thing I've ever done. I mean, I've been through some scary things, but this was so scary for me to just put it out there on why this stuff was impacting me. And also, I think I was speaking to some of my, I was speaking to my family, speaking to friends, but I was also speaking to my brother too, because my brother was hurt that I had never really spoken up about this stuff online. And he never really took the time to get to know why. And this was my way of sort of speaking to him too. Like, look, like I spent my whole life the way I coped and survived my environment. I stayed under the radar. I mean, I, I didn't in every aspect, but I did when it came to these really serious controversial topics because the odds were I would always be the only one that felt the way I did and I'd be the the anomaly mm -hmm. um and that's not a good <laughs> ratio <laughs> you know like uh when you you feel called to speak up about something um that you know most people around you aren't going to agree with you learn to play the game right mm -hmm. and so it yeah. makes so much sense that this was literally a survival tactic for you, yeah. Shaw. You know, like, of yeah. course you yeah. didn't want to speak out about things because your whole life, I mean, you're also surrounded by people who, like, when you did try and you assimilated and you would pray, they would, like, criticize you for, like, not praying correctly. So, of course, you don't want to, right. like, open up that can of worms and get into your actual feelings on racism and all of these things. It, make, it makes a lot of sense because you were never free. Right. You also saw your mother being free and expressing herself and that being squashed over and over again. So yeah, yes, you had a million exactly. reasons to not. Yeah, I to know. Not it's yeah. surprising though how many, you know, your average person doesn't really have that depth of awareness to understand how com complicated that is, you know? And I think a lot of the criticism or ridicule I've gotten throughout my life is, uh, I mean, I don't know if people have ever used these words, but they certainly felt this way in the way I was treated or talked to, but like that I was superficial, that I was like somehow I was excited and, and I loved assimilating to whiteness or, or whatever, or uh, jokes like you're the whitest black girl, you know, um, we've ever met you. You don't talk black. You mm -hmm. don't act black. 
and you don't look black. So it, I was acceptable in a lot of settings, um, but only because I, I had to behave a certain way. I had to suppress a lot of how I felt about stuff. However, I think the reason why I exploded when I did, I, I mean, I still, I speak pretty articulately when I write things out. Like I don't just like rage online and you, you can just, it just looks on this, like I'm just lost my mind. But to me, that was like a big deal. It was pretty extreme for me in the way that I put myself out there. But I don't know. I thought that I can't keep this stuff down anymore. And I have at least a small number of people around me that at least if I put it out there and I, I get some pushback, I'll have some support. You know, after I posted this really nice, more like cushioned uh, little message that I put out there, uh, trying to be respectful and, and careful and I treaded lightly. Um, I mean, I, I would get text messages after posting something Whoa. from people in my life. A lot of it was private. It was like it was sneaky and private yeah. and it was, it just fucking pissed me off. I'm going to say that because that is just exactly how it made me feel. Cause I was like, how dare you be such yeah. a coward to like privately DM me. And I, I got to the point where I had to turn my DMs off because it was so traumatic for me. It wasn't like I was just dealing with like one or two people that were like bugging me. It was like, you know, people from my hometown, people that I had been around in Chicago, people I had been in college with, people I'd gone to, you know, work with in Portland, people in my current social circle, people in past uh, circles, um, just coming from every angle. And I I didn't know how to handle it all. Um, And so I just... I kind of shut down for a while. Then after I saw more reactions from people, I came back online. I did not hold back at all on my second big post because, and I, I didn't name names, but I kind of called people out without calling them out. I was like, to those that said this kind of shit to me and my brother, or those that have done this or done that, like you need to understand. So I made a lot of people feel a, a, a certain way and they probably felt some shame or felt embarrassed, but nobody know who knew who they were. They just knew who they were, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I had a lot of people come back at me and tell me, like, your posts are basically telling us that if we're conservatives, we're racist. You might as well have just said, hey, all you racists. I'm like, that's not what I said. Um, but also, and I had if people that fits, were, yeah, I mean, I would fits, say it. <laughs> But I had someone that I barely knew take some tiny little post. It was more of a humorous one where one guy um, was saying how to argue with a conservative about race, asking those typical questions like, why are there more, you know, black men incarcerated in prison, right? And, And those typical stats that get thrown out with politics. Justifications for racism. Yeah, they just kind of gloss over these little statistics to justify their agenda. And and then the other guy on the other side of the line is like blasting him back, but in a very respectful way, sort of debunking those um, statements with real facts and statistics. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is a really important thing to listen to. And I even got people that I barely knew responding back to me going, thank you for posting that. That was actually really informative. They never took it as like, I'm calling out all conservatives or Republicans as racist or anything like that. But just this one person did. 
And I didn't hold back. I was like, I don't know where you're coming from, but you don't really know me. So I don't know why you're privately being DMing me all of this stuff. And I don't find it appropriate having a conversation with you about this kind of thing. And I also said, if you, you know, believe differently about this, this or that, then this post doesn't apply to you. So then it's not a big deal. They got so uh, offended. They were telling me that I made them cry. And I, um, you know, I, yeah, that I was being, I was like, I think one of the things uh, that they said was, I didn't realize you had so much hate in you. Oh, oh God. <laughs> because they Fuck can that. only see nope. it. That, it's so interesting, Shaw, yeah. because I, earlier I was like, I bet given the white expanses that you've had to inhabit, that you're probably a lot of people's only <laughs> black friend. And I assume that when people have been confronted with that, they probably have... Um, continued to I mean I would guess I mean I've seen this happen many times from people I know talking yeah. about or or considering others but it might be that you're kind of like the one exception for them or something and they're saying mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. about black people and spewing terrible racist shit but they don't see themselves as individually racist because they can't understand systems at all hey listen if you're an evangelical yeah. right yeah. now and you are still under the illusion that every individual is somehow like on their own and doesn't have any other influence besides whatever they bring to the table, I guess, or like what Jesus is telling you or some shit. You're fucking wrong. So you need to stop it. And you also need to like do a little bit of work to educate yourself about how things work in the world. How does culture work? Yeah. How do systems exist? Yeah. Why do we have a white supremacist system? Because it was made by right. white people for white people to continue to have power. God, mm-hmm. it's so simple. And white privilege yeah. is real. And it doesn't mean that like for a long time for me, I was like, well, I grew up poor. I wasn't privileged. Uh-huh. You know, it took me a long because I thought it just meant monetarily. And I was like, yeah. but but wait, but like, how was I set up for success in this world just based on like being born a white person, you know, like the opportunities that I have had or the way that people view me because I work hard, you know, that American like, yeah, I do. I work my fucking ass off and I am a Mm self-made woman, but that does not mean that our systems aren't deeply fucked and this weird pride and this American exceptionalism and whatever evangelical Christian like that we don't want to accept that. Yeah, I don't know. Like white privilege is real. Y'all just take a second and like I had a defensive reaction to that the first time I heard it like I want to believe that I am a self-made woman and I have to realize like sure to a point but like at the end of the day the systems in place in our country have set me up for success more than black and brown people and it's the truth yeah for people to not understand like how this impacts everyone it isn't just white people like I I can be very honest about the fact that I grew up with a white mother completely isolated away from my black side of my family. And I, I sort of got stereotyped in that the life that we got away from was, was the worst. And that like closer to whiteness, white family, white church, white environment, white town, whatever was closer to holiness and and safety and, 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 and a better life but it was the opposite for me. So like mom's side of the family, 
is the most dysfunctional, where most of the addiction is incarceration and criminality and a lot of generational trauma and dysfunction and, and poverty and things like that. My dad was struggling in life, yeah, after a, a certain time, but most of my dad's side of the family was in a much better than my other side. But I didn't know that. I was never told or explained that until I became a much older adult, until I learned like and, and became aware of like, whoa, like I've been growing up under this narrative, this stereotype and being it's been reinforced in my mind over and over and over again, not only by my own mother and my mom's family and, you know, at times in church and in our social setting, but access to my, my dad's side of the family, I didn't get to see the distinction between the two. I was like looking things up to find anyone else out there in the world that could understand like this, this dynamic, even though I know there's a, a lot of needs out there, right? Like, um, uh, black and brown kids being raised by their white parent or white mothers. I read this thing one time where this mom said, I realized she naively thought, which a lot of white mothers with black and brown kids do believe. She was like, oh my goodness. I think for a long time, I thought my, my white privilege would rub off on my kids. And that's not the reality for children being raised by white parents. She was like, I realized that we have kind of been setting our children up for failure because they were kind of looking at their kids' lives through that lens that like Mm -hmm. we saved them and now they're going to grow up and assimilate to our world and then therefore they'll be safe in this world. And it's quite the opposite, really. And that was my experience. My mom you know, I never had really any sort of conversation uh, with my mom before she died about any of this stuff, never talked about race ever (laughs) with her, which is hard to believe. But um, I was also raised under that colorblindness, Mm -hmm. which then caused me to sort of harbor without the awareness of that racism towards myself. Um, And I can even admit um, as a young adult because of everything that I had been conditioned to believe about myself, I ended up sort of projecting some of that onto my dad. And I had to work through a lot of guilt and shame after he died with some of that because he struggled in ways that I fully couldn't understand because of how young I was. Um, And I think he tried at times to connect me, know how to. Looking back, I'm like, man, if only I'd had more of that, more time with him. But he was gone during a very big chunk of my adolescence. And when he ended up getting out of prison and I was able to get close with him again. I mean, we were made close while he was away through letters and things like that. But he missed a really pivotal time in my life where I needed him and when he got out and I was in my twenties, we tried, but nine years left with him before he ended, he passed away in 09. Um, so I just never got there with either of them. So I've really had to be, um, I've really had to figure a lot of this out on my own. (laughs) That's tough. It's so much work you're doing. And, um, I know that you're, you're (laughs) not going to ever finish it. Um, and it's a lot (laughs) to have to process. Um, I appreciate you processing some of this with us and allowing us to um, remind you of some of this hard shit. Um, it's, it's really 
a gift to us, um, particularly for me as a white woman, to be able to just listen. And um, I feel really honored that you were so vulnerable with us and shared so much with us. Thank you. Yeah. I, and Thank I'm you. sorry. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'll say it forever. I'll say you it on behalf. You don't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> you went, you, you experienced things that, that okay. you know, are not okay. And we need to voice that. And we need yeah. to, I want you to hear that those things that you experienced were not okay in the way that you were treated, the way that you were forced into assimilation and that whiteness was held up to holiness is the most disgusting shit ever. And I'm so sorry that, especially that you experienced that Mm -hmm. as a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The way that white evangelicalism has decided what worship should look like it's 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 so damaging and I think that like it took me a really long time to realize that um you know it's like this dominant group of people with the most influence it's like it's 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 a colonization of religion like white people decided what spirituality should look like and like you said you are a deeply spiritual person Shaw and I think that and in some ways it makes sense that you never fully bought in because it didn't resonate with your spirit and you went along with it because it's Mm -hmm. what kept you safe and I'm just I'm so grateful that you have you've found a way out you have found some safe communities and support and I know you have you do the work girl like you have like you have inspired me to do more like person like the the ways that you have processed some of these traumas and you continue to grow and you the way that you lean into it and don't shy away from it is really inspiring and I and my hope with this is that um we can maybe inspire others who have been in similar places and at least know that they're not alone that there's people out there who have had these experiences and I'm just yeah like Meg said I'm deeply grateful and honored that you were willing to share that with us you are you are just a light Shaw I really love you thank you for being willing to come on appreciate it It's a generous thing to do. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I um I know there there's like only so much time on a podcast, but there's so much there. Um, but I was glad that I was able to kind of unpack some of the stuff with my parents with the church and growing up in that environment because there's a lot there, you know, that led to why other things sort of took place in my life. I really appreciate being given the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of it. So <laughs> not easy to do, but um, yeah, I, I appreciate the space to do that because I've never really been given that opportunity. So it means a lot. Thank you, Shaw, And thank you for being on with us for a couple of hours. And hopefully this gives you some relief and some freedom from some of these things to be able to speak your truth and to be able to know that you are supported and you are loved and that we see you and shit, that shit is fucked up and we're, we're going to help change that. Thanks so much for joining us for this really special interview with our amazing friend, Shania. If you like what we're doing and you want to support the show, please come join us at patreon.com forward slash holy ghosting. We share exclusive behind the scenes stuff there that only you get as a patron We would love to have you join our community and our conversation. We're on socials at Holy Ghosting Pod or Holy Ghosting on TikTok. What was her name? Amy Grant. Yes. Thank you. Amy Grant was like, I loved her. Definitely. And then Delirious was one that I was into. 
Yep. Um, Do you mean Delirio 5 exclamation point? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. Question mark. Yeah. Yeah. 